what the name of this lecture is. It is, second lecture, Background and Structure of Dante's The Divine Comedy, Part 2. Alright, let's go through this pretty quickly here. So, we know that we are reading an extended epic poem called The Divine Comedy. We know that the Divine Comedy is split into three sections. The word, though, we use for those sections is not sections, but is something like canticle or canto. Who can recall which word is appropriate to describing the Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso? Yes? Canticles. Canticles. Very good. That's the hand. Well then, what are the chapters within the canticles of which there are at least 33 in each canticle? Yes? The cantos. So remember that. Remember, remember, remember. There are three canticles. Those are the Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. And there are 100 cantos. Those are the chapters. In the Paradiso, 33 cantos. In the Purgatorio, 33 cantos. In the Inferno, 33 cantos plus one introductory canto. So there's perfect balance between all three. Good. Good, 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 good. Uh, also, just for your own personal edification, do you, does anybody recall what the physical event was which created Hell for Dante, the Inferno? Yes? Uh, it wasn't that the devil fell from the sky? Yes, it was literally the fall of the devil from the sky. He fell down through the sky, down through the earth, and then displaced the earth. And where did all the, uh, what happened to all the dirt that he displaced when he went down head first into the middle of the earth? Yes? He sunk it down and made it into like a funnel. So he, he, Busted a bunch of dirt around him and funneled it out. But what happened to all the dirt that he displaced? Yes? It made like a mountain structure going up. It made a giant mountain, and that mountain is the mountain of purgatory. Good. Good, 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 good. Okay, so now we know what canticles are. Canticles are the three main divisions of the Divine Comedy. They are the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Paradiso. We know also what the cantos are. Those are the chapters within the canticles of the Divine Comedy. There are 33 in every single canticle plus one introductory canto, and which canticle is that in? Yes? The Inferno. The Inferno. Good. Okay, recall also that Dante was born in Florence. That's the city-state in which he was born, which is the current city in uh, modern Italy. And he was born in 1265. That's the 13th century. We call these the High Middle Ages. The High Middle Ages. Um, and Which means it's a high point of the Middle Ages. In fact, it's very late in the Middle Ages, too. You might call it the late Middle Ages. It's almost getting towards Renaissance sort of time. In any case, i show you this slide again just to uh, Know that what made him remarkable was not his family, not his education. It's what he did, and maybe what he went through as well. But you cannot reduce uh, Dante to anything like family wealth or like a very powerful father or anything like that. All right, good. Very important for you to know here is that Dante very much had a real wife and sort of a celestial wife. His real wife was, of course, Gemma Donati. Remember that you will also meet her brothers in the Divine Comedy. One, Corso Donati, down in hell. One, Parisi Donati, in purgatory. Well, what does that tell you about what gets you into uh, purgatory or hell? If you come from a bad family or an evil, malevolent family, does that guarantee that you will go to hell for Dante? No, it doesn't. If you come from a really good family uh, full of saints, does that mean that you'll necessarily go to heaven for him? No. What Dante says determines where you go is not your political orientation, not your... Uh, not your language, not the people you come from, not even necessarily your religion, but it's the choices which you make. And so, who gets who, where they go into the afterlife? Yourself. You get you. 
where you're going. Okay, a couple things about Beatrice. Remember that her last name is Portinari, that she married at 1287, and then very sadly, three years later, she died at the age of 25. Very young, very young. Very sad time to die, as I said. People dying young, always sad. All right, good. Remember this. We talked yesterday about a type of love, which is a non-physical sort of love. I called it sort of the Instagram love from afar love, where you imagine how perfect someone is, never see their flaws, and then you use them as sort of a muse or an angel in order to inspire you to make beautiful works of art. Well, Dante considered Beatrice his muse, his angel, and considered her an ideal of perfection towards which he would strive. Is there a question in the back? I don't know if I addressed it. Yes? Uh, because that's the style of the time in which she was painted. That's a good observation. That seems to be a Renaissance representation of her. She does, she's also looking sort of out of the side of her eyes, kind of like the monk we saw. Her hands are in similar positions, though slightly different as well. And the, uh, her dress sort of looks similar. I think that's a good question. You have a good eye for art. Um, they do look sort of similar. Um, uh, good. All right. The only thing I needed you to know from this slide is that courtly love is a very different type of love from the love that we practice these days, unless you like to follow people on Instagram who you think are very beautiful or handsome and who inspire you to do great things. Anybody do that? I sort of do that, I'd say. I follow some crossfitters and they're more talented athletes than I am, and sometimes they post videos of them doing things I can't do, and it inspires me and makes me want to work hard. So I'd say I admit to that to some extent, except I don't get on Instagram much because, well, I'm a teacher. And we have a lot to do. All right. Now, this is a monster of a slide. All you need to write from it is papacy and empire. And actually, next to the papacy, write slash the church. I'm going to talk about the church like it is its own physical entity during the course of this course. Um, but I'll say a couple things beforehand. So, Dante's The Divine Comedy has often been confusing to readers, especially to modern readers, because he talks about so many things that we don't normally learn during our educations these days. First thing, the world of politics. He talks about medieval Florentine politics. We don't spend a lot of time in your history classes talking about 14th century Italian politics. But something important to know is that there were two big political parties named the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. They were at war with each other, essentially. They were at odds with each other for well over 100 years. And in fact, Florence is known for being very famous for the sort of turmoil that is there. A uh, very famous uh, banking family, the Medici's, would be based there later on. And also Niccolo Machiavelli, who you'll read as a junior, was based there. Florence is a very, very famous city. And in fact, you can still go there and see lots of busts of both Machiavelli and Dante, though Dante was exiled. And here's something funny about, and this is just sort of a, uh, uh, a crude joke about Italians, that they have long memories. Dante was only unexiled by the Florentines, Something like 15 years ago. It was in the 2000s. He was exiled in 1302. So it took them 700 years to admit making a mistake. Essentially. So, long memories, long memories. Alright. Second thing that is thrown into this series of texts. The world of theology. So we can talk a lot about the Old Testament, the New Testament, Christianity, and Judaism. Characters from those traditions. Perhaps you have some experience with them. I would say most people these days know a couple of the big names. A lot of people know about Adam and Eve. A lot of people know about... Christ. A lot of people know that Peter betrayed Jesus three times, not Mary, and was, uh, and was also the very first pope. That knowledge will come in handy here. You don't need to know a ton about the New Testament and Old Testament, but he will put a ton about that into his text. And then third, the world of learning. This is something that modern readers don't have, but you have a slightly better background in. 
this Greco-Roman mythology, literature, and poetry. You've read some Greco-Roman philosophy. You've read some Greco-Roman poetry. And uh, you've probably also read some Greco-Roman stagecraft. Uh, Oedipus. How many of you have read Oedipus? Good. Oedipus the king, not Oedipus the colonus. Excellent. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Okay. Next thing to say. In the Middle Ages, especially uh, on the Italian peninsula at this time, there's a major conflict between the state and the church. The church is supposed to be a balancing force for the state. They're supposed to have power over your soul, your spirit, your moral choices. It's supposed to guide the state. This might be an evil thing to do, going to war with these people. This might be a good thing to do, saving these people. Well, once the church becomes corrupt, are they still an adequate compass, moral compass? No. Answer is, no, of course not. So then, who determines what's good and bad? Well, it's hard to say. Well, let's add a wrinkle to this situation. The church is corrupt. What if the state were also corrupt? So the people that are responsible for the laws and your physical well-being are corrupt. The people that are responsible for the eternal laws and your soul's well-being are corrupt. Who are you supposed to listen to? Maybe yourself. Those are excellent answers. Brilliant answers, in fact, because that will be what Dante says. You seem to remember what it was that I said from the first lecture, which is Dante's deep claim about this book seems to be that when you start to read it, your mind is enslaved to the ideas of past. But by the end of it, he hopes for your mind to be free. And you might well want to think about what true freedom in this world is. Is it physical freedom? Or is it mental freedom? Hmm. Interesting question. We'll probably write about it at some point. Question. Which one was more powerful? The church or the state? It depended on the state, and it depends on who is ruling the church at which particular time. But one thing you should know about both the Holy Roman Empire and the uh, Holy Roman Church at this time is they could both gather armies and take taxes and have money and were very powerful. And so the church was essentially like a state at this time. And so you might even think about it like that. And that's a big problem for Dante because it's not supposed to be that way. Um, it's, I, I've, I found that modern readers have a lot of trouble conceptualizing this because it would be like imagining like the Lutheran church down the street having the power to tax you and then raise an army and kill you if they wanted to. And it's like, that'd be very difficult these days, you know. Uh, and religions uh, are far more splintered than they were at that time. There are far fewer choices these days. In America, there are lots of different sorts of Protestantism. Very few, uh, far fewer Catholics at that time. Everybody was Catholic. Cool. All right. The papacy, just to tell you, there are still popes around. Some people believe that there is a direct line of succession from the first pope, Peter, who knew Jesus, all the way till now, which is pretty cool. That means 2,000 years, essentially, almost 2,000 years, of um, direct patrilineal descent. Though there are people that question this claim you'll learn about this year, this year in your history class, that there was a time when there were two popes, there was even a time when there were three popes, and one of the popes excommunicated at least one of the others, maybe two. And so some people say that line was broken at some point. Uh, it depends. Uh, mostly Protestants say yes, Catholics say no, but that's, a, that's an unsophisticated way, unsophisticated way of putting it. Alright. This is important, especially for that study guide that you have. Constantine the First. Just write his name down, and then you'll write some things after it. Now, Constantine was an emperor in the 4th century Rome. Rome had been a pagan state up until him. He was the first Roman emperor to convert to the new religion of Christianity. Christianity, as you know, uh, there was a guy named Jesus. He lived till around 33 BCE. And then the, uh, the New Testament gospel started being written around 70 BCE. There's some guy named Paul who started writing some letters around 50. 
The church starts coming together with the apostolic fathers around over the next couple hundred years. So basically, Christianity was like sort of a loosely organized cult for a few hundred years. It takes a long time for something to become established and strong. After Constantine converts to Christianity, it explodes in popularity, of course. You know, it'd be like Kim Kardashian wearing some Nike shoes. All of a sudden, everybody's going to be wearing them. You know, somebody famous does something, other people follow. It's just how it works. It's how it works. In any case, all I need is for you to write from here to here. Dante believed that on Constantine's deathbed, he put in his will that he wanted to give away the western half of the Roman Empire to the church, the Catholic Church. Which seems like a fantastic gift. Give the church a whole bunch of land, then they can put a whole bunch of churches there, and they can administer to the poor, and make everybody holy, so they get to go to heaven. Sounds like a good idea. And yet, an expression that you may know, that very much applies here for Dante's understanding of that moment, is that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That means that even though you intend to do good things, sometimes you do bad things. And the example I always like to use is, say you're seven, and you want to make a delicious waffle breakfast for your mom, and you do it yourself, probably you end up not making many waffles, but you do make a huge what that she then has to clean up. Mess. Mess, exactly. Exactly. And that's Dante's idea of what resulted from this donation. Because the moment the church was given a bunch of land, that means a bunch of wealth, that means a bunch of power. It attracts the sorts of people who are power-hungry, the sorts of people who are willing to be corrupt in order to maintain and increase that power. His idea was that the church was never supposed to have any property. It was just supposed to be given it out of charity, which is, I would say, a very interesting idea. In America, you might know that uh, actually we have a small idea of this. We do not do something to church buildings that we do to every other building, essentially. Do you know what we don't do to them? Yes? We're that's interesting. Sanctuary? I don't know. That might be true that we they can offer sanctuary and we don't deport people from inside them. But I'm thinking of something slightly different. We don't tax them. We don't tax their buildings. Which is uh, pretty interesting. Because the idea is they're not a business. They're not supposed to be in the business of making money. And we still respect that. Okay. One thing we now know about this document is it was a forgery. The gift of Roman land from, from the Romans which were no longer existent in the 8th century, which I'm about to talk about, or, well, the Western Romans, the Byzantines, who called themselves Romans, were. Um, the land was not actually given through the donation of Constantine. That was a forged document, but Dante didn't know that. We know it was a fake, a forgery. The person who actually gave a bunch of that land away, who we can actually blame, was the 8th century king, Charlemagne, son of Pepin. I believe it's called Pepin the Short, which is not the greatest name to receive. Uh, the titular name. Alright, Charlemagne, that's the French name of Charles Magnus, Charles the Great. Uh, one of the most famous emperors you will learn, around, learn about. In any case, he's the one that really gave the church some power. And we will see him mentioned again very much negatively um, in the Purgatorio, but then we might see him positively in the Paradiso. Alright, cool. Donation of Constantine, forged document from the 4th century, 325, by the first Christian king, Constantine, Dante believed that that was the beginning of the end of the church. That is what made it into the cesspit or cesspool that it has become by the time of his life. In fact, 
Dante will have Peter the First Pope describe the current church as a sewer full of blood and filth. Which seems pretty nasty, pretty filthy. Alright, the importance of Virgil. Two things about him, you don't need to write this. Virgil, to the Middle Ages and to Dante, he was the most important poet. You say to me, Mr. Schmidt, what about Homer? Virgil? Homer, Homer's our guy. We read the Iliad, we read the Odyssey. Well, you are in a better position than Dante in the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, all Greek works were amongst the Greek-speaking people, the Byzantines, or at least many of them, not all of them, uh, including Homer's works. In fact, we didn't get those works back, I believe it was after, until after the fall of the Byzantines to the, uh, the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, who defeated them in 1453. So, why did the Middle Ages love Virgil so much? Well, who were their options? Did they have Homer to choose from? No, they didn't. And so Dante knows less about Homer than you do. Now, he does know stories about Homer. There were French, uh, there were French stories published about Homer. Uh, in particular, one's called Le Roman de Troyes. It means the Book of Troy. And that's where uh, Dante learns stories about Troy. Because he, you will notice while you read the Inferno that he seems to know a little bit about the Iliad and the Odyssey. But he didn't get to read them himself. And so, a couple things about Virgil you need to remember. Virgil was born in 70 B.C. You remember this from last year. He died in 19 B.C. That means he died 19 years before the date that we ascribe to the birth of Jesus. Now, this is going to be important in a moment. I don't need you to write anything until here. The Aeneid and the Eclogue. Know those two terms because of this. As you know, the Aeneid is the most famous work of Virgil, and it will be referenced over and over and over again during the course of the Divine Comedy. Through the Inferno, through the Purgatorio, even in the Paradiso, there will be some references to it. One of Virgil's less famous works, he had two other works, two fledgling works before the Aeneid, he didn't just jump into an epic, were the Georgics, which is about farming, the word George means to work the earth, geo and ergos, and the eclogues. Make sure that you write down the eclogues. I know that that is a question for your study guide. Because he had ten eclogues. They are pastorals, where he writes about nature. It would be like if you wrote some poem about, oh, the beautiful Escondido River that has no water in it, that I see people biking down in order to do nefarious deeds every day. Something like that. That would be a pastoral. Probably something slightly more beautiful where you talk about nymphs and springs, how beautiful trees and flowers are. That's the idea behind a real pastoral. In one of these pastorals, the fourth eclogue, Virgil departs from his usual theme of talking about the beauties of nature and talks about the coming of a divine child and a golden age with a new race of man. Now, that all sounds... Well and good, but that would have sounded very interesting to people in the Middle Ages, given the timing of Virgil's life. If he died like 20 years before Jesus, could that be the divine child? If, after Jesus came, a new religion came to be, which would become a, the most powerful religion in the world by numbers, especially where Dante lived, would that be a golden age? And would that be a new race of people? Well, that's how people interpreted Virgil in the Middle Ages. They didn't just think he was a poet. What's the name for the sort of person, you might have seen them in Homer and Virgil, who can predict the future accurately? Yes? 
A prophet indeed. People thought that Virgil was a prophet. And I'll tell you something sad. You would think if he were a prophet of the Christian age, that he would not be consigned to hell. It would be very much wrong to assume that. Even though he was considered a prophet, and I'll tell you something very sad. We will meet a character in Canto 21 of the Purgatorio named Statius. Statius was a Roman poet himself. And he will say that Virgil was like a man who holds a candle behind himself. Does anybody understand what that simile means? What does it mean to be a man who holds a candle behind himself? Yes? He can't see in That's close. He definitely can't see in front of himself. If you hold a candle behind yourself, can the people behind you see the way? Yes. But can you see your own way? And so, this character Statius will actually say that Virgil's work is responsible for his conversion to Christianity, which ends up getting him into heaven. And yet, because of this, does Virgil get to go to heaven? No. And so that might be the second thing that I tell you that's very much bothersome to you about this inferno. Our guide, our prophet, Virgil, who we know so well, and we'll know even better by the end of this, will have to go back to hell at the end of purgatory. Just like there are very much unbaptized children down in limbo. This tends to bother students. And we'll talk about it next Thursday during seminar if it's really bothersome to you. In fact, probably a lot of this will bother you. And that's good. And that's good. Okay, let's prove it. Here's the fourth eclogue. I want you to look for elements of Christianity. You're a medieval, you're a medieval person. You, you think Virgil might be a prophet? Let's read. Muses of Sicily, I say we now a somewhat loftier task. Not all men love coppice or lowly tamarisk. Sing we woods. You don't need to write this, by the way. Woods worthy of a consul. Let them be. Now. The last age by Cumae Sibyl has come and gone. And the majestic roll of circling centuries begins anew. Justice returns. This is based on a myth that when justice and nemesis leave the world, when just revenge and justice leave, the world will end. It's also based on a circular idea of the movement of history. That there's a golden age that Saturn created, Kronos, the father of Zeus, followed by a silver age, which is slightly worse, followed by a bronze age, which is slightly worse, followed by an iron age, which is slightly worse. That's the age that Virgil finds himself in. In fact, I think it is a natural way to think to say, times used to be better. They're bad now, but they used to be good. In fact, I, I, as an adult now, I can say that many adults are like, man, things were simpler when, they were, when we were kids. It's like, yeah, you had a lot less money and freedom, too. But you do have more responsibilities the more freedom you get. In any case, let's finish this. Justice returns, returns old Saturn's reign, with a new breed of men sent down from heaven. Only do thou, at the boy's birth, in whom the iron shall cease, the golden race arise. Race arise. All right. If we're medieval people living in a medieval age, and we read this, we might think that Virgil, living 20 years before the coming of Christ, is prophesizing that a boy will be born who's sent down from heaven. Who do you think medieval people thought that was? Jesus, of course. Who would be the new golden race of people from heaven then? Who are the people of Christ who celebrate Christmas? Yes, the Christians. The Christians indeed. Very good, very good. And so there were people in the Middle Ages who thought that Virgil was essentially a Christian prophet who lived before Christianity, and there is some evidence that supports that that's not a bad way to think about it. All right, good, 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 good. I need you to write these right 
numbers here. They're very important. I'm not going to spend much time talking about them, though, because I, I'm not a numerologist. But three is a number you're going to see recurring several times. As you know, the book itself is split into three canticles. The stanzas of each, which are the paragraphs in poetry, are each split into three lines. They are called tercets. The rhyme at the end of the line of each tercet, each end of a line, except for the first two and potentially the last two, rhymes three times. It's called terza rima. And this is based on the idea that uh, the Catholic God is both one and three at the same time, a paradox. It's God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and yet he is all one. Now nine. Nine is significant for two reasons for Dante. Uh, the first is that it is a multiplication of three by three. If three is a holy number, and you multiply it by three, it gets even holier. The second reason is, how old was he when he first met his muse, his angel Beatrice? Nine. So that's a highly significant age for him. Thirty-three is significant for two reasons. A, that's the amount of cantos in each one of the canticles, plus one additional introductory one for the Inferno. And is also itself a multiple of three. Three, three, three. You've seen three all the time. Seven days of creation. Seven is considered one of the perfect numbers in Christianity. I, I can't tell you all the reasons why, but I can give you two instances of it. Seven is the number of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I believe, which we'll talk about some at the end of Purgatorio. Seven is the number of days and the number of days of creation, or the number of days of a week and the number of days of creation. And it's also an amalgamation of the number of virtues that Dante knew about. The three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, and four cardinal virtues, temperance, fortitude, justice, and prudence. Hmm, good. I can also tell you one other weird thing that's not written up there, which is if seven was the number of perfection, six was the number of imperfection. There is a number people like to throw up, 666, which they call the mark of the beast. There are two ways to interpret that that make make it a devilish number. A, if 6 is the imperfect number, you have 6 three times, that's a very imperfect number, possibly represents the symbol of imperfection. Uh, the other way you might put this is based on the Hebrew study of uh, how numbers are applied to letters. It's called gematria, and one of the earliest persecutors of Christians was named Caesar Nero. He's a guy who was very famous for setting his own city on fire and violining during it supposedly, and uh, laying with his sister. He's considered a pretty crazy guy. Well, if you apply Gematria to his name, Caesar Nero, it comes out to the number 666. Bang. And so, good idea there. Uh, 10, also considered in some ways perfect uh, to the medievals. I think it's because it's the first compound number. Uh, also, because if you add up the first four numbers, that's what, uh, that's what you come to. 4 plus 3 plus 2 plus 1 equals 10. Of course. There's not much else I can tell you about that. Um, but it, that is a good note there that Greek Pythagoreanism, the Pythagoreans, the people who gave you a squared plus b squared plus c squared or equals c squared, the Pythagorean theorem, they came from a weird religious cult that um, uh, worshipped uh, essentially philosophy and math. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Couple final things. Okay. You don't need to write what's on the left of the red line. You do need to write what's on the right. It's going to help you very much on the study guide now. Now, I told you we were going to talk about the structure of the Inferno, and I said that there are nine circles in it, and that there are sub-circles within circle seven. There are three sub-circles, or eight. There are eight pockets within it called bulges, and nine. There are four sub-circles there. The nine circles themselves are divided into three different sections 
depending on sin. In fact, the first five circles relate to the sin of incontinence. The seventh circle, you notice I skipped six, uh, are the violent sins. Uh, there are three types of those. And there are, and in circles eight and nine, are the sins of, it says fraudulence here. I want you to write malice instead. Fraudulence is actually the eighth circle. It's fraud. Malice. And now, I have to explain something about Dante for you to understand this fully. Dante believed that all humans have a soul. This wasn't just a Christian idea. It's also based on Plato's idea of the soul. So I need you to write these three parts right now. And I would like for you to write them next to appetite, next to incontinence, spiritedness, next to violence, and rationality, next to malice. Why? Okay. This is what Dante believed about the soul. It was itself tripartite. It had three parts. The first part, you share with animals. Appetite. You get hungry. You get tired. You get itchy. You need to scratch. That's what your appetite is. And well... Then what is incontinence? What is that a sin of? What's the sin of your appetites? There's lust, there's gluttony, there's greed. If you're greedy, you want too much money. If you're overly liberal or generous, you give away too much money. If you're gluttonous, you eat too much food. If you're lustful, it's very hard for you to stay in a relationship. And so, in any case, that's what that means. Alright, the second part of the soul, the spirited part, it's located, supposedly, according to Plato, around your diaphragm. They actually believed, uh, the ancient Greeks, that your lungs cooled down your heart, which I thought was interesting. Because when you get angry, do you ever take deep breaths in order to make yourself less angry? It does seem to make some sense. It makes some sense. In any case, those who, are, who lack spirit, they're cowards. Yeah, don't hurt me. But those who have too much spirit, they become violent. They fight everybody. So, spiritedness, the corruption of it, is violence. Okay, the third one, malice. That's when you take the human part of you, the rational part, the intelligence, the part that can speak or help you generate and understand speech. When you use that to deceive another human, when you trick them, when you counterfeit something for them, when you flatter them, when you betray them, that's you using essentially your evolutionary adaptation as a human, your ability to think, in order to help people, or to what? Hurt them. Dante's idea is that the whole reason you have a logos, an intelligence, a rational mind, is so that you can work together in a group for maximal survival, which seems like a pretty good idea. But what happens when you use your mind to get what you want in order to hurt other people? What's that do for your group? What's that do for your family? What's that do for your society? It hurts everybody. So then you're using the thing that's supposed to help everybody in order to hurt everybody? Well, Dante thinks that's, that is the worst thing that you can possibly do as a human. And what makes it even worse is that if you're thinking through doing something bad to someone, then you have a choice whether you do it or not. See, that's very different. If you're violent, you might just lash out at people. If you're gluttonous, you might just get hungry and not be able to control yourself. But if, say, you're planning to murder somebody, when can you stop planning to murder someone? Anytime. Anytime before you do it. So it means... And we do honor this distinction. It's a distinction between first-degree murder and manslaughter in almost every state, where if you accidentally kill somebody, you might get 18 months. You might even get put on probation or something, depending on how good your lawyer is. But you, if you commit first-degree murder, you might go to the electric chair or get life in prison. Whether you choose to use your mind to do evil to other people or just accidentally 
do is a distinction we still maintain and we still very much care about. And you all know this too because don't you ask people all the time, did you mean to do that? And doesn't it make a difference how they answer? Like, I didn't mean to. In any case, I want you to keep that in mind. All right, the three-line poetic structure. This is going to be the final piece of information that you need today. It is called the Terpso Rima, triple rhyme. So I just want you to look at it really quickly. Um, over on the left, you see the Italian. I'm going to read it to you, not because I expect you to understand it. You can see the translation on the right. I just want you to listen for the rhymes. Look at the last words on each line. No mezzo de camen di nostra vita, di ritro per una selva escura, che la dorida via eros marita. Now, if you look at the board where I have Terzo Rima written, and you see these three letter conventions that I have here, this is the rhyme scheme. ABA, BCB, CDC, DED. This is how it applies to these lines. A, B, A. B, C, B. Uh, D, C, D, E, uh, F, E. Okay, let's look at the last lines. If this is correct, ABA, then the first line and the third line on the first tercet should rhyme. Vita, smarita. Rhyme? Yes. Then the, uh, the middle line that ends with the scura, and the first line of the next tercet, and the third line should rhyme. Let's look at that. Ascura, dura, and paura. Do those rhyme? Let's see if the pattern continues. Forte, morte, scorte. Rhyme? Very good, very good. Trovi, intri, abandoni. Punto, junto, compunto. Valle, spaye, calle. Do these all rhyme? Yeah. Yeah, they rhyme. And so, what you notice is that every single rhyme except the first uh, two lines, and possibly the last two lines, always rhymes how many times? Three times. Again, three, three, three. I always show this to students in Italian because look over at the English. Do you see that triple rhyme? No, it's much harder. But look back at the Italian. Notice how many of these, letter, these words end with vowels. It's almost all. Much easier to rhyme. In fact, I, I, I think I told fifth period. I don't know if I told you this. Uh, if you were making fun of uh, somebody, somebody who spoke Spanish or Italian, uh, or somebody, and because you didn't know any of it, what would you add to the end of a word? You'd add no. I know, exactly, right? Well, you know, that's actually literally true in some cases with uh, Italian. The name Roland becomes Orlando. But uh, it is true in Italian that many of these words do end with vowels. Diro de l'altra cosa qui scorte. You know? And so if you want to be a poet, sorry you should have been born in Italian. Just kidding, you can learn Italian if you want to. Okay, good. Um, don't have time to mention what the first three lines mean, but I will tell you this. They're highly metaphorical. Midway upon the journey of our life, Dante is 35 years old. He believes that people, based on the Old Testament, live to be 70 years old. He finds himself in a dark forest. That means he doesn't know the way forward. That means he's lost. He's lost in terms of what he's supposed to do in his life. And in fact, we will see a dark forest again down in circle 7 of the Inferno. It is where people who have committed self-harm are. People who have killed themselves. People who are suicides. And so, possibly at the very beginning of this poem, we find our hero in the darkest situation of any hero we have met yet. Aeneas was being attacked by a goddess, and they just lost three of his ships, and had to put a strong face on. Very bad situation. Where Dante is, is he's in such a dark place that he requires an angel to send a guide from the past in order to save him. It is, very much, uh, it is very much within the realm of possibility that he is considering suicide at this moment. He is in about the darkest possible place you can imagine. 
That's why he says that he is in a dark wood, a place of confusion, a place of fear, because there are beasts in the wood, and a place where you do not know the way for. Alright, I think I have two more things to teach you, and one more minute to teach them. You need to write down this quote now. It's the most famous one from the entire Inferno. It is, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. We have a very bad translation of this in Canto 3, line 9 of our Sisson translation. It's a good translation, but he says no room for hope. You who enter here, not very strong. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here, though it's very good. The idea is that you don't have any hope in hell, because hope is a certain expectation of future glory. Hope means in the future things might be better. Well, what are things never going to be down in hell because things never change? Better. Better. They'll never be better. And also, you no longer have the good of the intellect. The intellect is the thing you use to change the world while you're alive. Once you're dead, can you change anything? No. All right, last thing you need before you put things up. I need to not hear paper, but I do need to see you looking. This is a schematic, and so is this, so is this, and so is this, of the Inferno. As you can see, it's an upside. It is a funnel. It starts wide, it gets thin. That means the vast majority of sinners have committed small sins, incontinent sins. But there are some near the bottom who are truly cold-blooded. In fact, I say cold-blooded intentionally, because down at the bottom of hell, you would imagine there would be all sorts of what. When you imagine hell, you imagine what's everywhere. Lava. Lava. Blood. Fire. There will be ice at the bottom of this hell. And I will explain how cold and calculating the sins are down there. I have more to say, but I'll tell it to you tomorrow.